Welcome back. We have Matt. Ahoy hoy. Scott. <laughs> yeah, that, that's me. Jordan. Hello, friends. Sabrina. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> and me, Paul. And with our powers combined, we're the, the 12 Cybernetics. <laughs> Captain Planet, he's a hero. Gonna take pollution down to zero. We've been really excited for this episode because this is a chance to talk about the entire campaign so far, share some of our favorite moments, and get everyone up to speed on the story heading into disc two. And if there's one thing we know about most disc twos, it's that the stakes are usually higher. The world seems a little grimmer, and in some cases, the story becomes incomprehensibly abstract and convoluted, but not ours. Anyway, if you like us, you can support us in multiple ways. The easiest way, tell a friend to check us out, or leave a rating and review on your podcasting app. And if you really love us and want to help us get some snacks and the whatnot, then check out our Patreon. You get some extra content and maybe even a little gift from us to you. And one last thing, Nari and the boys... Happy anniversary. <gasps> it's our anniversary. I didn't get I'm you so anything. I'm so glad you remembered. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I totally remembered. Is I, Paul, the paper remembered one? 100%. <laughs> the paper anniversary, yes. <laughs> yes, this I is made, paper. I yes. made you an origami crane. There we go. Anyway, if you thought the end of our disc one wasn't quite as grim as Sephiroth and Aerith slash Eris, then this podcast is for you. It's the Crystal Codex episode 52. So, yeah, so our, our ending to disc one may not have been quite as grim, I think, as the Sephiroth Eris uh, ending in Final Fantasy VII. However, I think that more people died in our, yeah, objectively, in our end of more disc people one. Are yeah. gone. Oh, totally. <laughs> we have that going for us. All right. Okay, so today is a little bit different. It's going to be a little different uh, podcast episode than we normally do. We are going to be just kind of free-flowing and talking about the campaign so far. So... Our plan is to go back to the very beginning to episode one and to kind of hit the high points of every episode, talk about the different chapters, some of our favorite moments and some of the maybe the surprises or even like um, our favorite characters or even the things that made us a little bit, I don't know, grumpy or salty. Well, let's go ahead and just jump right in. Chapter one, treason and the written word. Episode one, the occupation of Tabri. This goes way back a year ago. It all started in the city of Tabri. Um, we had four people, four characters at different points in the city, all in the middle of the night. Um, I believe that Pine and Ebby were about to go pin a note on a bulletin board full of anti-imperial propaganda. That's right. Wow. We were putting out our anti-imperial tract. That's right. Rebel scum. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Nari was actually um, looking for you guys because she had actually come to Tabri um, looking for the writers of this sedition in hopes of, I, I think, kind of teaming up to finding some allies to help combat the empire. And, and you guys were not very sneaky. Oh no! You're like, are you guys are you guys falling heaven? And we're like, what's that? 
<laughs> it was pretty brutal. But all this was going on while Roos, uh, who was a bounty hunter, was watching from the rooftops. He was yep. also looking for whoever had been writing that sedition for a different reason. Roos, do you remember why you were out there? Well, I was also looking for Fallen Heaven because he thought that whoever was writing the tracks had some sort of connection with them. And let's just let's Fallen Heaven is the premier anti-imperial like uh, freedom fighter rebel group. They're like the returners in Final Fantasy three slash six. They're I, no longer needed. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> can I can I just kind of uh, a little peek behind the curtain uh, behind the screen, if you will. The name Fallen Heaven. Do you know why I chose Fallen Heaven? To me, it sounded kind of like a bad translation. <laughs> like it wasn't like a cool like a cool name it was kind of like a it may have maybe it sounded cool in another language but then when you translate it to english it just kind of sounded a little bit clunky and that's kind of why yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh man i once i once knew a french girl and her name was and yes and i was like oh that's a really pretty name and yes and then i saw it written and it was agnes Uh, (laughs) kind of the same thing interesting (laughs) yeah there you go that's fantastic well anyway as our four (laughs) party members were all kind of trying to i mean we were trying to get them everyone back everyone together to start the campaign suddenly they all heard some noise coming from the gates and the gates opened as um i believe roos was the only one who could see what was going on but an imperial regiment came marching into the city in the middle of the night and they were accompanied by 20 metal men now just so everyone has kind of an idea of what's going on. Um, Ebby, played by Jordan, is also a metal man who for a long time thought he was the only one. Um, and in come 20 more of these all decked out in armor and with weapons. Um, and they appear to be some kind of Imperial guards. They looked so, far cooler than I did. They they did. You are, you're a little bit of a... <laughs> a little dumpy. Of a, 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 a little, little dumpy. I'm a little <laughs> comely. That's all. You were generation <laughs> yes. one. They're generation two. <laughs> yes, the yes. original iPhone of <laughs> oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> so um what happened was is that these imperial soldiers started going door to door, knocking on doors and um and uh harassing people and uh one of the imperial soldiers spotted Pine and Ebby and Nari and uh came down to confront them and um asked them about um the tracks that were being posted around town and thanks to some good deception rolls the entire story changed course right then and there um <laughs> but uh pine Ebby, and nari quickly became um allies and they decided that they needed to stick together in order to avoid the imperial um officers and soldiers that were coming into town and um as they were kind of leaving the square roos jumped down and joined them and they decided to to figure out what was going on uh why the imperial soldiers were there and you kind of gathered back together at, a, at an inn called the Kagery. Um, while you were there, a, a big announcement. Somebody was going through the streets announcing having everybody come out to the main square in front of the castle um, because an important announcement was going to be made. And again, this is like two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So, so now, that, now that we're all together, do you wanna, should we just quickly introduce what our, who our characters are? Go for it. Okay. Um, I'll start. Pine is a 71-year-old former general. He is uh, he has white hair and a beard. He wears a blue uh, jacket with a fur collar. Um, and uh, he looks just like uh, an old man, except that he has the ears of a caracal and some of the markings on his face as well. Um, but he's not a cat man. He's just got cat ears. 
and uh, he is uh, a, a swordsman. So he uses a, a saber in combat. One might say he has cat-like speed and reflexes, though. That is true. That is true. So that was Pine, and Pine was sneaking around this old man with a cane and a sword with Ebby. Yes. Uh, Ebby is, um, he is, you know, this kind of robot creation that woke up about five years ago and has never been back asleep since. <laughs> um he just watches his friends sleep all night That's long. That's what he does. It's a <laughs> hobby, and he's really good at it. Um, this world doesn't have melatonin. That's right. <laughs> Eat some sleepy time tea, the poor guy. I like melatonin skin cancer? Oh. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> I like to eat one or two melanomas every night. Help me get to bed. Um, (laughs) Anyway, uh, so Ebby is like about six foot four, six foot five. Um, In terms of his construction, um, his kind of he's not like a a big, like muscular robotic thing. If anything, I would describe him as kind of like the Iron Giant meets C three PO, where he's just (laughs) he's just kind of this brass colored kind of tarnished old looking very simple uh robot um but he's got a very deep affinity to nature whatever he was prior to becoming a robot um because it's kind of like his soul was transferred into the robot body um but whatever he was prior to that they were very connected with nature so um Roos is a young man he's you know 25 26 he uh, is is fairly short. He's kind of like below average height, five six, five seven, and um, he's got shaved sides of his head with a short ponytail on the back, a really like ill fitting mustache, and he's typically wearing like a sleeveless sweater vest, and he's got this this beautiful long Mikasa scarf. Yes, Mikasa, um, young Mikasa from Attack on Titan, I believe. Yes, young and Mikasa. From what, when we say Mikasa scarf, that's what we're talking about. <laughs> Not like the giant Lenny Kravitz scarf. No, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way I described him, I think in the first episode, and kind of how we've we've done it is, he just he has really bad fashion sense, but he doesn't know it. Um, so yeah, that's that's Roos. Oh, nice. he's also a bounty hunter. And he was on a mission. The other characters didn't know this, but he was on a mission searching for the heir, the heir of the Everlyn Royal line. And his his job was to find the heir. And if he found the heir to bring them back to Howling Talon so that they could then turn the heir into the Empire and make a huge payday. Yes, because this story takes place in a, in a place called uh, Tabri, which is a city in the Arkelvy province of the Empire, but the Arkelvy province used to be a country called Everlyn. All right, Sabrina, tell us about Nari. All right. Uh, so Nari's about seven feet tall in her late 20s. Um, and she actually comes from the mountain clans up in the Glass Mountains from the north. But she left her family behind uh, to come into the city and make a life there. So she has really short hair, bright red. Um, The other big thing you would notice about her is she has a ton of tattoos on her arms, lots of like banded um, tattoos. And as far as like her personality, especially in the the earlier episode, she was a little bit more quiet and subdued. Oh, and she carries a 
really cool axe. It's like a dual sided axe uh, carried over her shoulder. And she takes that with her everywhere she goes. Yes, a well-worn, well-cared-for axe. Yes. Okay, so they were all, all of you all were together in the Kagery, this inn in Tabery, trying to figure out what's going on when you were all summoned to the castle um, in the middle of the night. And so as you rolled up, you saw that standing on the uh, the parapet or the wall in front of the castle, um, there were two men who had come with this imperial regiment. Um, one of them was younger. Um, he was kind of sloppily dressed. You found out later his name was Adjudicator Rolf, and he was one of the six adjudicators of the empire, which is kind of like a, uh, a Judge Dredd type of a character where um, their word is law. They speak for the emperor, and they also carry out uh, summary executions if they need to. Um, the other man was older. He was missing his left arm, pinned up at the sleeve, um, and he is actually a man that you found out his name was uh, Chancellor Ramsey. And he is the chancellor of the empire. And uh, uh, I don't think you knew this at the time, but he basically had the ear of the emperor. He was one of the top advisors to the emperor of the entire, uh, this entire massive nation um, of the Almerian empire. It should be noted too, Paul, that as we were heading to the castle, um, that we also enlisted the help of one of Nari's friends Yes. slash lover named Ember, who is a, um, a dominatrix that was working in the kegery. <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> and yes. she was also part of uh, our secret society, the Rose Syndicate. Yes, uh, so yeah. she, she was a spy as well. Yeah, so Nari and, Nari and Ember had a history together where they were fighting the, the Empire by gathering information and passing it along to Fallen Heaven as part of this, um, this group called um, the Rose Syndicate um, that kind of in our session zero with uh, Sabrina, it kind of fell apart. Anyway, these imperial dignitaries tell everyone here that they have to give up uh, Fallen Heaven or they have to give up the person who's writing this treasonous um, propaganda. Um, otherwise, within a week's time, people were going to hang. And of course, Pine felt terrible because he had been writing them. Um, a deal is struck. Roos uses some of his connections with Howling Talon to make a deal with Rolf that he will go out into the wilderness to try to find Fallen Heaven and try to make that connection um, because uh, the Empire was here in town for the same reason Roos was. They are looking for the heir of the Everlyn throne. Rolf gave Roos a little piece of paper saying, you know, hey, um, you can leave the city because they had locked down the city. And when the four heroes leave, they leave by way of the gate that is protected by a man named Bert. Uh, Bert Bertram. A good old friend of Pine. We used to play cards together. That's right. Smoke cigars and then play cards. And so Bert actually ends up letting them all through the gate. But he warns Pine afterwards that the, the writ, the letter, was only for one of them. And so he is kind of putting his neck out on the line for them by letting all four of them leave the city. All right, so from there, we go into episode two. And ep during episode two, the heroes are making their way up into the mountains because that's the only lead they have right now as far as Fallen Heaven. And, um, you know, Roos is looking for the heir. And there was some mention of uh, him being in the shadow of, what, Mount Tabor, which is a mountain north of Tabory, which where we started. Um, so they head out onto the, on the trail and they head up into the wilderness. And on their way they meet a traveling merchant named Gerard, who has been described as a chubby Morgan Freeman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, they meet chubby Morgan Freeman. Yeah. And, and chubby Morgan Freeman, a.k.a. Gerard, um, he has a giant, um, think of like a 
like a cross between a, a yak and a buffalo that is also, you know, twice the size of, of either. Yeah, it's like a bantha size. Bantha yeah, it's like Star bantha Wars. sized. Um, so we, we meet Gerard and this this woolly ox's name is Porthos. Um, he lays eggs and they're delicious. <laughs> they have cloaca. Um, <laughs> so we, we did a little bit of shopping with Gerard and then he warned us that there were gobloids in the mountains. We all laughed because Paul changed the name of goblins to gobloids. And it yes. was fun. <laughs> yes. I'm quite clever that way. Yes, so we spent the night there with with uh, Porthos and Gerard, and then we uh, went our way the next morning. Um, and uh, as we were traveling, there was a tree in front of the path, obvious trap, and we were, of course, attacked by gobloids. You guys managed to kill off all the gobloids except for two. There were gobloids and, and hobloids. Yes. <laughs> Again, Isn't that where I'm gob clever. came from? Yes, that's the next episode. Yes. Okay. I'll jump into episode three again real quick because episode three was the bane of my existence for a while. Um, so they decide <laughs> they have captured this goblet and this hobbled. They start questioning them, but the goblet and the hobbled don't understand common or the language common is Ustranian. They don't understand. But Ja, a ruse can understand them because he has this big <laughs> Mikasa scarf, which is a, it's a scarf of comprehend languages. So we spent like, 30 minutes trying to talk with Gob, trying to figure out Gob was the goboid, um, trying to figure out kind of what's going on and, you know, asking all these questions and finally realize that there's no um, information that these guys have. And so um, I do believe that Gob, who has become a fan favorite, was summarily executed by Nari. He had to go. He did have to go. It was the way of things. Yeah. <laughs> so then the party moves further north up into the mountains and they find this kind of this waypoint, this shrine to Lord Moshe, the Lord of nature. Um, they decide they're going to set up camp there um, and uh, move out the next day. Um, and as they're there, they kind of they spot this weird branch because there's this tree growing up out of the middle of this shrine. Um, and before they have a chance to investigate it, suddenly they hear these horns and they are attacked again by gobloids, hobloids. And this time their leader, a very large, very strong bogloid. Um, and this was a deadly fight, but it was a powerful moment because this was the first time that we had a character actually go unconscious and we had Roos actually give a potion to Ebby. Um, and then when Ebby popped back up, he breathed fire on the bogloid and killed him. It was uh, pretty epic. <laughs> it was pretty epic. So, um, yeah, so that was the third episode. And then the fourth episode starts there um, again the next morning yeah. there at that sacred tree. Um, so the sacred tree, uh, this was like a shrine to Lord Moshe. And when we inspected it, we found, you know, this weird branch and stuff. And so we descended, it kind of slid open the whole uh, raised dais that the tree was on kind of slid off to the side and it revealed this, you know, giant, call it a well, I guess, very large with stairs that kind of wound down around the side of it going deep into the underground. And so we followed it and went down there. And after descending for a while, for a hot minute, um, we eventually kind of get down to this, final pool of water and a hallway that led into this ancient, ancient facility. Um, one of the first rooms we go into there, you know, there's some, some patterns that kind of show the colors of the crystals and everything like that. There's, there's the statue off to the side that's holding a bunch of the crystals and it, you know, kind of looked like a bird creature holding it. And, um, 
And then there was another statue on the south that had hands in the same position, but uh, I believe the south statue looked like Ebby a little bit. It was kind of like a robot um, deacon, as we've come to know them at this point. Um, and so we were able to move those crystals from one statue to the other and open a passageway. And at the end of the passageway, we got attacked by a bunch of spiders. And uh, yeah, and thus leapt into action once again. Yes, those spiders were way more powerful than they should have been. (laughs) (laughs) Highlight of the episode was, again, I think I mentioned this fairly recently, Ebby doing a perfect front flip and describing it as C-3PO doing a front flip. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to imagine that, but yeah. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> but that's, that's exactly what happened, yes. Was that the best part, or was it finding a secret door? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. That this, that this did awaken something in Pine. <laughs> he always wanted to find secret doors, and this was the first one, and he got really giddy about it. And, it, um, yeah, so he's been looking ever since. Yeah, I believe that Pine described, you would describe it as Pine was knocking on every brick with his cane trying to find a secret door. As you guys are finding the spiders, then um, you end up, you finally end up killing the spiders after, you know, Nari got, I think, wrapped up in web. And I do think Joff got knocked out a couple times. He was lying in a pool of water, uh, paralyzed for a while. <laughs> you manage to kill the spiders and move on through this old ancient facility. And you find this room and there's this pedestal and there's kind of this glow and, and floating above the pedestal is this disc. And I believe I described it as like circular and divided into eight different kind of wedges um and each wedge was a different color uh red orange yellow green light blue dark blue purple and white and we described it as the crystal pizza shield because it's about the size of a papa murphy's family sized pizza um also um nearby um ebby i believe found a book that was written in a language he didn't understand um but it had like a crystal in the cover and uh Let's see what happened. Oh, you guys take the crystal pizza shield and then this giant robot comes out of the uh, out of the shadows and attacks you guys. Um, lays some pretty big hits on you, but you manage to take it out. And then as it's falling, the robot exploded and it opened up a passage behind. And the passage, of course, led exactly where they needed to go. One of those classic uh, video game tropes from, you know, the Super Nintendo era where, oh, you know, where should I go? Well, don't worry, because when you beat this bad guy, the path will be open and you can just follow it. Uh, but yeah, as you guys followed along that that cave for a couple of hours, you came to the end of the cave and you could hear voices on the other side. Pine uh, recognized one of the voices, a very deep voice. And so Pine said, we got to get to that wall. Uh, he recognized it as Brinby or Tiny, who used to serve with him in the military before his country was taken over by the Empire. And once the wall came down, we actually found the cell of Fallen Heaven we were looking for. Brinby was a member with some other people. The leader of Fallen Heaven, of this cell of Fallen Heaven, was actually Roos's sister, Kira, who Roos thought was dead. And he thought that her death was his fault. And so um, it probably, probably was his fault. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Kira did survive, but she was heavily scarred. Yes, yes, heavily scarred. Um, So in this cave, the group devised a plan to try and lure the army out of Tabory so that they could help the citizens not get um, hung. I think my favorite part of that episode is when I got to sing a national anthem for the country Pine is from that I wrote. He's from a country called (laughs) Menarest. 
um, that was taken over by the empire and I wrote a national anthem for it and I sang it. And actually just, just two or three days ago, my wife was tidying up in my office and she's like, what is this? Do you still need this? And it was the sheet music that I'd written out for this anthem. I was like, yes, I need it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, one other thing that was important that happened in this episode, everybody leveled up to level four and we got our first glimpse into Ebby's inner monologue. He heard a voice from his past, um, somebody named Neam, who he had talked to before. And they have this little conversation kind of hinting at things um, from Ebby's past, as well as things about the deacons and about Crystal Tech and all of that. So that was a very interesting conversation that um, Ebby got to have with Neam for the first time in actual play. And he actually did have a conversation with Neam way back in his session zero, which we have not actually put out um, for our listening audience yet. So after we hang out in the cave with the cell of fallen heaven, uh, the next morning we kind of all have breakfast and Pine's hanging out with his old Menares buddies. Uh, Roos and Kira are kind of awkwardly talking. Nari uh, finds another glass, another woman from the Glass Mountain tribe, Dylan, who was there. Um, and when she has a moment, Nari goes over to Kira and kind of gives her the information that she has gathered from the Rose Syndicate um, that she was supposed to kind of deliver the information to Fallen Heaven. And in return, Kira gives her a cell stone so that way they can kind of communicate. And then they follow along that plan to go down to Tabory and uh, create a distraction to try and get as many of the the soldiers out of the city. Uh, and that's where Ebby's butt rope came in. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Darn right. Oh, yes. Quick, grab onto my butt rope. That's where Nari's <laughs> trauma all started. Yes. <laughs> um, so we had fought giant spiders already, and they had almost killed us. But the trauma started <laughs> when Ebby turned into a giant spider and had us hold onto his butt rope. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but we did all end up making it over Tabory's walls. And um, we went in there and we met a bartender named Angus. Um, and we basically just kind of got him riled up about the empire and basically kind of planted the seeds for a riot. Yeah. Well, cause another thing that had happened was, is that you found out that Bert who had let you guys out had actually confessed to writing the anti-imperial tracks and um, covering for pine and Ebby. Yeah. Yeah. Being the good friend that he was, he, uh, he covered for pine and he was going to be hung the next day. So we decided to do a Robin hood, Prince of thieves. <laughs> yes. We got some uh we got some angry villagers. Um we recruited some help there. Uh Roos went off and talked with Adjudicator Rolf. Yeah, Roos went off to talk to Rolf and uh they flirted a little bit. Yeah, there's a little little flirtation there. <laughs> yes. But uh, I think the DM was oblivious. <laughs> uh, a little bit oblivious plus your rules I believe were not that great. When with You're right. your my rules were uh, pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I, I made the important ones and lied successfully. Yes, yes, you did. <laughs> so that got that got most of the soldiers out of the city to chase down the the kind of the, the false trail we'd set for Fallen Heaven. So they left the city. Then we we tried to recruit guards to say, "Hey, Bert's one of you," because Bert was Bert was a uh, a city guard. They weren't any help. But then we started a riot and we had a a battle at the hanging. We were able to free Bert. We fought Adjudicator Rolf. We fought the priestess there too, right? Yes, oh, and we yeah. fought a priestess, a, a priest of Iramil who was there. She was tough, but 
the the help from the city, uh, the people of the people of the city, and there was another uh, a priest there as well, a priest of Erdos, the Lord of Healing. She also helped us in the fight, and we were able to win. But sadly, Adjudicator Rolf died. Yes. I say sadly because we didn't want to kill him, but he fought kind of till his last breath. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ebby was dragging his <laughs> dying body through the street and didn't think to stabilize him. So yeah, I'm pretty sure I made death saves as you were dragging him. And it was like five, seven. And then I think I rolled a natural one for the last one. But he was just dead <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> My but, bad. But Adjudicator Rolf did recognize Pine. Um, that was kind of oh, cool. That's right. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. uh, Adjudicator Rolf was a swordsman as well from Menares, but much younger. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, um, so then we. After that happened, we need to get out of the city fast. So um, Pine gave his house to Roos's mom, who had lived in the really poor part of town because Pine wasn't going to come back to Tabor. He figured he wasn't safe there anymore. And they all left. Um, yeah. So we made our way out of the city and then kind of wound our way back to the ancient facility. Um, you know, we had tried to plant some kind of false information. So the guards would try to. Um, go track down the fallen heaven syndicate in the caves, but you know, hopefully they would long be gone at that point. Um, and then I can't remember what other reason we had necessarily to go back, but we went back to that ancient facility and down in the room where we got our crystal pizza shield, uh, we ran into chancellor Ramsey and a bunch of these, uh, deacons. And so we had ourselves a right good battle. And I think Ramsey, well, I don't think Ramsey had tried to escape um like cast a spell or do something in order for him to leave like to just teleport his way out of there i'm assuming teleportation uh but he failed and we actually captured him yeah and so that was episode 10 we killed a bunch of deacons which i think ebby was more or less fine with that i mean they tried to kill us so it was what it was actually i think i think ramsey killed more of the deacons than we did because he actually turned he was able to somehow turn them into living bombs yes this is true yes yeah so the deacons were exploding and and this is also the first episode where we got to deal with some fireballs that was fun (laughs) yeah definitely so yeah so that was the end of episode 10 us back at the ancient facility now with a captured chancellor ramsey and that, my friends, was the entirety of Chapter 1. And now we had the Chancellor of the Empire captive. Yes. Um, so uh, at the start of Chapter 2, we were trying to figure out what to do with him. So we actually had some really interesting conversations with him. He tried to negotiate his way out. Um, and uh, we decided that, no, we're actually going to take him because he's a very valuable prisoner. We're going to take him and we're going to deliver him to Fallen Heaven as a um, as a prisoner that they could use to get some information out of to help them in their fight against the Empire. Yep, yep, yep. I seem to remember a little bit of very light torture being involved. Enhanced <laughs> interrogation <laughs> techniques. Yes. yes. We, dabble, we dabbled in light torture. <laughs> <I think laughs> the, the dark side of things. Yes. Um, anyway. we, we also didn't want anybody to know that we had Ramsey, so we came up with a cool uh, code name for him. Um, he was wearing boots with fur, so we decided to give him the nickname Applebottom. 
literally the only logical conclusion. <laughs> yeah. To. Well, and this, so for, for, for the whole chapter, he was called Applebottom over and over and over again. But this is also the first time you guys are presented with this idea of inevitability. You talk, start talking with Ramsey and he mentions this idea of the inevitable will happen, nothing you can do about it. Um, and you guys ask him questions and he is cagey and um, tricksy. But um, regardless, you guys end up taking him with you out of the facility and you are, you are going to meet up with Fallen Heaven to deliver this pernicious cargo, as chapter two is called. The next day, Pine is a little slow to wake up because he is having this vision of his past. Matt, do you remember what happened in that vision? Yeah, so uh, Pine had a vision of when he was uh, basically court-martialed um, and when he was uh, discharged from his military service. Um, he had memories of the conversations he's had, he'd had with his uh, commanding officer, Field Marshal Kennig, and how the, the, the conversation originally went isn't what happened in his, in his dreams. He had um, a conversation that ended with Kennig kind of pledging to continue to help him. And then when he woke up, as they continued to travel, um, an Alaton appeared at a crucial moment. Um, and this Alaton was carrying the sword of Kennig, which is an S-talk, which is a big two-handed piercing sword. Like a like a great sword had a baby with a rapier. <laughs> Sexy. Oh, it was very graphic. <laughs> <laughs> Clanging everywhere. Yeah, so this Alaton, it's like, I described it as an anime elk with a tail of a fox. Um, and instead of antlers, it has like a rhino horn. Only this one is special. It has a crystal uh, rhino horn. And later I named it Crumbles. Yeah, you guys are being attacked by some red panthers. You managed to kill them off. And uh, Crumbles became your companion, your um, your mount. Um, you guys followed uh, the tracks back to the red panthers hideout. You found some um, really well-built mithril chainmail, And... Um, then you managed to get across a ford um, across this river um, right before the rain started. And I believe uh, did not stop for weeks. I think it was actually it was raining before we got there. So we were worried that if we waited any longer, the, ri the river was going to swell and we weren't going to be able to cross. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The next one was episode 13. Um, and in this one. We found a house out in the middle of the forest as we're traveling, and it turned out to be uh, the old mayor of Tabery's house, Mayor Joyce. And we ran into our old friends, Gerard and Porthos, and um, we met a man named Colbury in the basement of this house. And it got a little tense, the, the discussions. Yeah, so Joyce is the mayor, but she had been absent from Tabry during all of that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves stuff and like putting people in, in the stocks. Um, and so she wasn't even there. She was here in her vacation home. And Colbury was the magister. He was the imperial representative kind of over Tabry. So he was now, had escaped Tabry and he was hiding out here with the mayor. Right. And as you guys get to talking with Colbury, um, you guys are kind of sparring back and forth. And one of the most important things that comes out in this conversation is Colbury starts talking about this prophecy um, about the heir uh, to the old Everlyn throne. And it's, uh, uh, we don't need to repeat it here, but 
basically it says that the air is kind of here in the shadows of Mount Tabor playing in the fallen leaves, something to that effect. And um, while that conversation is going on kind of in the basement underneath the mayor's house, Applebottom, Ramsey, is um, out in the woods uh, and Ebby is guarding him and Ebby and Ramsey start having a conversation and Ramsey clues Ebby into the second part of the prophecy, the part that Colbury did not seem to know. And the second part actually makes mention of Ebby and Pine and Nari um, in kind of a um, in allusions to um, to their characters. Uh, and so they feel like they got a better grasp of this whole prophecy and Ramsey tries to tempt Ebby into freeing him and um, then Ramsey promises Ebby that he'll like tell him more about inevitability and teach him and for a second I thought I had Jordan I thought I had Ebby um, but then uh, no Ebby decides to stay true to his friends and uh, puts the gag back in Ramsey's mouth and um then the party is given um, a riverboat to get away from the mayor's mansion basically as quick as possible. The mayor is not happy that they are there, does not like the uh, kind of the commotion that they have caused with their visit and wants um, at this point Nari and the boys as far away from them as possible. It's a trap. <laughs> it is a trap. It's a trap. <laughs> yes, because as they're sailing down the river um, in the middle of the night, uh, they get attacked by another ship with um, Imperial soldiers on it. And there is a fierce fight. There is jumping back and forth from ship to ship. There is a, a ball of fire that catches the ships on fire. And then one of the ships, the, the Imperial ship starts to, uh, starts to crash into the ship that our players are on. And that ship starts to catch on fire, but they manage to get, uh, you know, kind of over to the shore, um, kill off all the Imperial soldiers. And then they decide to sink both ships and try to make their way into the forest and avoid other Imperial, um, Imperial pursuit. But they realized that somebody must have clued the Imperial soldiers from Tabory uh, where, where our heroes were, um, but they couldn't quite figure out who had done that yet. Zoinks. <laughs> <laughs> We, so we made our way from the river into the forest while it's dumping rain in the hopes that we can kind of hide from the Imperial soldiers who were clearly on our trail. Um, and they attacked us. And I know that's where we met Hop, but that's pretty much what I remember from the <laughs> <Yeah>. battle. <laughs> well, this is the first time I think we saw Porthos and Demos. The, uh, Phobos. Phobos. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Phobos and Demos. Yes, the dire wolves. Yeah. I'm summoning um, Porthos next time, though. <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is the first time we saw them. And then Hop, I think, was actually one of the last Imperial soldiers that after the fight was kind of over, um, instead of killing everybody, um, some of the soldiers were knocked out. And Hop was this archer who was knocked out. And tied to one of the direwolves and sent off into the woods to kind of hide the trail of our heroes, uh, who then uh, made their way to a hunting lodge that had a stable and they managed to stay the night for at least a couple hours, get a short rest in and discuss what they had learned uh, from the prophecy, from their conversation with Colbury and from the conversation with Ramsey. Uh, as they're talking and they're putting pieces together, they kind of come to the realization that maybe Roos is actually the heir to the Everlyn throne. Hot damn. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was said. And I'm pretty sure that Roos said, nah, not me. Um, <laughs> that's not about right. <laughs> yep. 
then after taking a couple hours of rest, they head back out into the rain, into the forest. They didn't want to put anybody in that house in danger. Um, and as they're moving through the forest, they run into a man who is looking for his family, a man named Artis. Um, and uh, this was kind of a, a dark moment, I think, where um, the it, it was a it was a it was a moral quandary. Like, yeah, well, do we yeah. do we stop and help this man whose family had been taken by imperial soldiers because they were kind of rounding everybody up? Um, or do we continue with our mission because we have this very valuable target and we don't want to put, his, you know, his, um, his, we didn't want to put ourselves in danger of losing him um, to the empire. Um, so we, we had kind of went back and forth, like, which was the, which was the good that we were going to do. And it was a right. hard decision. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we basically said, do it yourself. And Ja or Roos gave the guy a knife and we're like, Adios, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true. And then just as the sun was coming up, as you guys had left this man, Artis, as you you were coming up, you you managed to reach the road. And you guys were trying to get across the road to the south side of the road. You figured once you got across that road, you would be safer. Um, But as you were trying to cross the road, you ran into another imperial um, group, as well as the priest of Iramil, who you had fought earlier at the gallows in Tabori. This time, the fight was a little bit different. Um, You guys were hit pretty hard. And um, in the middle of that fight, uh, the priest of Iramil cast a wall of fire, knocking out three characters. And the fourth character, Roos, got knocked out very soon after. This was a very tense moment. I thought Uh, we ruined the podcast, honestly. I was like... (laughs) How, how, how are we going to continue if we all die? <laughs> yeah, it was pretty tense. <laughs> and I was ready to start killing off characters because that was the ruling of the dice. Um, and as they're making death saves, uh, Roos had a vision kind of a like a as his life was flashing before his eyes. He has this memory of his parents arguing and fighting. And he realizes, wait, maybe I am the heir because it sounds like my mom and dad aren't really my mom and dad. Maybe I was adopted by them. And maybe my mom is actually who I thought my mom was maybe it's her sister but sabrina rolls a natural 20 on her death saving throw pops up with one hit point pours a healing potion into ebby and then gets up and starts dealing some damage and that honestly turned... the most dramatic D <laughs> moment i think i've ever had in my life oh yeah i could not breathe it was so oh, stressful yeah. so intense oh <laughs> uh, that was great Anyway, the tides turn, the priest of Iramil is killed, and then our players continue on their journey and manage to make it to Westfell Lake, which is where they're supposed to meet Fallen Heaven. Um, And they kind of walk around the lake. They find this old, um, decrepit, uh, uh, fallen down settlement. They have some conversations along the way. They all kind of decide, well, maybe maybe Roos really is the heir. But then they manage to reunite with Kira and Fallen Heaven, and they are going to give apple bottom chancellor ramsey over to fallen heaven as this great prize uh but we, along the way we also discussed keeping the the crystal pizza shield kind of a secret well we were going to take that one on to try to figure out what it does because we we started to have some conversations about maybe fallen heaven's methods are a little too giant hammer instead of precision scalpel 
So um, as you guys are getting ready to hand off Ramsey um, from the woods, um, a last battalion or last group of Imperial um, operatives managed to find you. But it is not... Um, it's it's different than before. This time it's like, I think 10 soldiers and like six deacons come, but there's also this man and kind of this, basically, I think I ended up describing him as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. Um, and he had this large crate. When he opened the crate, this massive uh, construct, this massive robot, like 10 feet tall, uh, climbs out and you have a battle with a bishop. Um, so that fight was fun because the bishop kept healing and siphoning off damage that you guys gave to his handler, the acolyte named Grimm. Uh, but you managed to bring down Grimm or subdue him and destroy the bishop. Uh, I think that this all ended with um, you handing off Ramsey to Kira as well as this acolyte. Um, the bishop got destroyed Uh Ebby lit some horses on fire and made them run off into right the woods. <laughs> you darn right I did. And then as uh, Kira and, and Fallen Heaven are getting onto this boat to sail away, um, leaving you guys on the shore, um, Kira lets it slip that the leader of Fallen Heaven's name is actually someone named Richter, who Pine recognizes from his past. He was a, he was um, a pompous ass. He was a pompous ass. And you guys decided to, instead of going with Kira and Fallen Heaven to part ways, as you decided to investigate the Crystal Pizza Shield by heading over to the capital of the Arkelvy province, the city Arkelvy. And that is the end of chapter two. Nice. <laughs> okay, so chapter three starts off with us kind of arriving in Arkelvy after a couple of weeks on the road. Uh, we started to try to get our bearings. Um, so we actually had a fun uh, visit exploring the new the city of Arkelvy. There was a lot there to do. Um, when we first arrived, Nari took us to the the tavern that she used to work at when she was working with the Rose Syndicate. The Rose Syndicate was they kind of worked with Fallen Heaven, but they were a organization of prostitutes. Nari was kind of their their muscle, uh, and they would get information, um, privileged information based on the uh, the the work that they were doing with some of these imperial officers. Um, so we went to that inn. That's where we stayed our first night. Uh, but as we then we split up, Ebby and Pine. Uh, went off into kind of the main market and we were looking at a bulletin board. We found some some quests, but we also found a one dope of the a chamber pot. Yes, <laughs> we right. found a chamber pot. Um, and we also found one of the tracts that that Pine had written um, had made it all the way to Arkelvy and was put up there. And it actually looks like it had been copied by somebody else because it was in somebody else's handwriting. Um, we also we saw that wealthy imperial people were using deacons kind of more as butlers. At this point, Roos has figured out that he's the heir and he has to abandon his mission. He was hired to capture himself, essentially, and that was a conflict of interest for him. And he decided to quit Howling Talon instead of um, dealing with the repercussions of telling them the truth. So he um, gave up his tools and all of his gear and had a class change, actually. The class change involved him getting more in tune with his um, ancestors. And so he has, at this point in time, ancestor spirits guiding him and helping him along. 
Yeah, and one other thing that happened in this episode, very, very important, is that they got to see Tedward, who was in town for one night only. Oh, that's right. Tedward. <laughs> very, the very important. Bard. Best show of the year. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> you wouldn't know. You weren't there. Yeah. It was just Abby and myself. Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, we also had some some really touching moments, I think, with, uh, with Nari, um, kind of uh, paying tribute to some fallen loved ones, right? Yeah, Arcovi uh, was Nari's home for a couple years after she moved out. It's where she went to college, kind of. Like, after <laughs> she moved out from the Glass Mountains, uh, Arcovi was her home for about five years. And when it was bombed, she lost, she lost her community. She pretty much lost everyone. So it was really difficult for her to go back, um, especially after what had just happened with the Rose Syndicate. Now everybody who she knew there was pretty much destroyed well you guys decided to switch ends after nari bought this awesome delicious bass and nothing's good uh, enough and, for you guys <laughs> well it was because the guy who was running the lazy leg in where you guys were staying he butchered it he just like he burned it or it was like charred on the outside and like still gooey on the inside it was terrible i think there was a a, a one a roll of one to cook it um so you guys decided to switch ends and as you guys were switching ends, you managed to run into gerard and porthos again um and he was of course selling some of the same things but also some new and improved items um and i'm pretty sure you guys bought a couple of things there but it was then off to the library to start to try to figure out if you could get some more information about this crystal pizza shield um, and try to figure out um, how to read the book that Ebby found in the ancient facility. Um, and the, the ancient book was written in a language called Allele. Uh, and you were trying to uh, figure out how to read that. So off to the library of Lord Cadriel, the, um, the Lord and or Lady of Knowledge and Magic. Yeah, we got to, we got to help the librarians there to do alpha, <laughs> alphabetize some books. Uh, that was good. <laughs> I think we helped them invent the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Oh my gosh, that was the episode where I actually had to mute myself to stop from laughing as you guys were trying to figure out the puzzle. <laughs> so basically, we came into the library. We said, "Hey, can you teach us allele?" And they're like, "What allele? No, that that's not information that we have access to." Uh, but wink, wink, you may check in this other room, and in that room, we found a puzzle uh, where we had to correctly shelf a book <laughs> and as soon as we did that one book as soon as we correctly shelved one book um it opened up a secret passage down into the hidden library of uh cadriel yeah full of all the ancient uh the more um the illegal information all the illegal books and things that the empire did not want its citizenry to have access to so it was still available if you could find it um, but yeah, that, um, that one book to shelve, um, that was a whole, pretty much a whole episode. That was great. Down in the lower library, you managed to meet another librarian who, um, clued you in on some different areas of this library that talked about allele, this ancient language, also some information about inevitability that Ramsey had talked about. Um, and, uh, also some of the Royal family line, uh, for Everlyn. And, um, and even, um, there was a globe that, um, was rotating in place, uh, kind of along with the actual planet, uh, that you guys could see. And there were a couple things that were different about the globe compared to the world now, like the glass mountains did not exist on that globe. And it was, uh, an ancient, uh, tech type of a, um, artifact that did not have 
the Glass Mountains, which was very interesting. Um, and then uh, I think the last thing that happened was Ebby found a magic ring on a statue and the librarian just kind of winked at him and said, finders keepers. And so Ebby ended up getting a ring of evasion, actually, which came in very handy in chapter four. Sure did. I think uh, one of the things that happened, too, while we were down here in the library, I think we started to put some pieces together because we've been talking about this um, inevitability. We've been talking about a cult that worships inevitability. Um, one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, the Empire, their patron deity is the Angel of Unity, Iramil. And they, um, in our research, we learned more about an angel of inevitability as well. And we started to put it together that maybe Iramil is both. Yes. So you guys all had books to read, which you guys, as you we played later on, um, you were able to gather more and more information as you read the books at night before bed. But as you left the library, um, Nari was uh, greeted uh, in a carriage by somebody that she knew. Uh, but Nari got into the carriage and then a couple minutes later it got out and she could not remember. Snaky is what it was. Well, it was snaky, <laughs> but you didn't know that at the time. You thought, oh, it was somebody thought you were somebody else. So you got into the carriage and you had a nice laugh. And then it was, you thought it was some older lady with white hair when in actuality, everybody else had seen this um, kind of this uh, beautiful middle-aged woman with uh, dark, dark hair. Um, but it took a while to put that whole thing together. Um so you guys, uh, one of the things you had found back at the bulletin board was something talking about this wilted rose at the gardens in the city. And you put, managed to piece it together that maybe this wilted rose was actually the Rose Syndicate, this group that Nari had belonged to. And so you guys decide to head to um, this park to see what you could find about these wilted roses. But that was after some full frontal nudity at Bander's Baths. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Can't skip that part. I forgot about right. all that. Oh yeah, that's right. Because Pine um, almost stumbled onto a side plot, um, or he kind of did, but there there was just not enough uh, information for him to really grab hold of it. My perception um, checks weren't great. Yeah, but I did but, meet a poet named Pender. Yes, a Pender, a poet named Pender. Yeah. So when you guys got to the to the uh, garden and you started following these different clues about the wilted rose, you end up. Um, following these different symbols that lead you into this um, kind of the cellar outside of the gardens. And as you follow uh, some of the clues and open up some secret passages uh, down into the catacombs that are beneath Which made the city. Pine so excited. Yes. <laughs> Pine, Pine was uh, very excited. Um, but these catacombs that spread throughout the whole city, um, you find this room uh, that is this chamber of the Wilted Rose. And while you're down there, you see... Uh, these two men, one is blue skinned and kind of fishy. One has red skin and horns and is dressed kind of uh, knightly uh, in armor with a sword and shield. And you also see this small, um, attractive woman with uh, white hair uh, named Nilla, who Nari used to work with in the Rose Syndicate. And as you guys get to talking and find out that she is trying to rebuild the Rose Syndicate, you realize, hmm, Maybe we were followed. <laughs> but yeah, on our journey, we'd kind of put it together yeah. that, that the person in the carriage wasn't uh, who um, Nari thought it was, that it was probably Aliyah Brava, who was the former leader of the Rose Syndicate and was there when um, everything fell apart a, the, a few months earlier. Well, I think that's also about the time I got my memory back too, wasn't it? Now, you get your memory back in a couple episodes because you have to go to the temple to get that. The Temple of oh, Eridos. That's, that's right. 
Yes. I think of, I think that episode, Nari and Roos going by Joff at this point, had uh, they were having dinner and um, the, the something came up. You mentioned something that didn't line up with what Joff had seen. Yeah, and I said so it was we, like an old lady, and you were like, yeah. no, dude, it was a... She was hot. It was a dark-haired yeah. woman, and she was babe. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also found out that uh, while you were in the carriage, she had totally cut some of your hair and messed up your sweet fade. That's, oh, that's right. right. It was, oh we noticed God, your that hair. That was so upsetting. That's right. She took some of your hair. <laughs> that's right. Um, and so we figured, <laughs> we figured with all that combined, we were probably followed. Yes. And actually, that's exactly what happened. As you guys were in this chamber, you heard a voice call out telling you guys to come out. And I had actually prepped. So we use a virtual tabletop and they can see the uh, initiative order and they could see that I had like eight or nine different uh, tokens ready to go for combat. Uh, and they decide instead to run the other way. And so our party, they run through the catacombs the other way. They manage to get um, accosted by some specters and some zombies and ghosts and that kind of thing. But they manage to get uh, find a path out um, of the catacombs. And Ebby casts a, a spell plant growth to kind of block off the passage so that they can't be pursued. And they end up back out in the gardens um, there in the city. Um, and they realize that they need to figure out what's going on with Nari's memory. So they decide to venture to the temple of Erdos, uh, which is the kind of the Lord of, of healing. And when there, uh, Nari gets her memory restored. And actually that was kind of fun. Cause then we got to role play the conversation that happened like three episodes earlier. Um, but then they realized that yes, uh, Aaliyah Brava had um, had modified Nari's memory and was indeed hoping to follow Nari in order to find the Wilted Rose and this uh, new attempt to, um, to uh, infiltrate or to pass on information about the Empire. Never trust a snake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the her bottom half is a snake. Yeah. Yeah, especially a dummy thick snake too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so while while Nilla and uh, her kind of the people who are helping her, the Wilted Rose, um, they're hiding out in the catacombs. Uh, Aliyah Brava, this we called her the snaky bitch. Um, she is living it up in uh, a manor with imperial protection in the center of the city. Uh, so she is she has made out really well from her betrayal. Yes. So I think you guys decide, well, we got to get in there. We got to get in there. We got to capture her uh, and get her to the Wilted Rose. Um, and there is actually, um, there was a holiday coming up, um, Fantasy Halloween. Yes. Uh, which, which we call um, Gadiver's March. Gadiver's kind of like the, the lord of, of death and decay uh, and kind of undeath. And his march was coming up um, at the end of Ormanbar, which is Fantasy October. So some prep happened, including buying some wicked ass costumes, um, also getting some poisons, buying some poisons so you could try to poison people at the uh, at the party. Again, um, not not to kill them, but to give them like the squirts. We were yes, we were, we were looking for a brownout from season two of American Vandal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The third burglar, yeah. The third burglar, yes. Anyway, so um, there's a couple episodes of going around town and trying to get everything organized. Um, you know, they go back to the baths. They have a run-in with Pender the Poet again. Um, he shares a poem about the bombing of Arkelvy, which is, I thought it was kind of uh, sad 
Um, but he's going to be performing at this party. So there was one possibility of a way to get into the party. Um, and then um, Pine ran into somebody very familiar in town. Yeah. Uh, so Pine happened to run across uh, his son, what his second child, his, his son, uh, Temrid Jr. I should mention P- Pine's full name is Temrid Pine, Lieutenant General Temrid Pine Sr., retired (laughs) and so he ran across his son temrid jr and they had a conversation we found out that temrid jr who left home a long time ago to study law was actually working with the adjudicators now in their tower of judgment and he was accompanying an adjudicator who was here in the city um and uh, he felt very conflicted about the role he was playing in the empire and seeing firsthand just how destructive uh, the empire has been to the community, the different uh, provinces that it's taken over. Um, And he wanted to help Pine um, with whatever he was doing because Pine let him know that he was still, you know, fighting against the empire. Um, So they had a touching reunion and, um, He actually gave uh, Pine a writ that would let him into the party. Yeah, I think it was you and one other person. Yep. And then Joff, uh, Roos, who now goes by Joff, he had another (laughs) plan. Do you remember, remember Joff, what you did to get into the party? Yes, he uh, bluffed his way in uh, pretending to be a visiting um, nobleman from Barrister and successfully made some um, diplomacy checks to get an invitation. And this particular invitation was a sheet of paper from this woman's personal book, which <laughs> this, turned out this, to be such a great choice. This woman was, the description of this woman was, she is dressed like a witch. Yeah. She's got a big, a big witch hat. You know, I, yeah, it was kind of funny. And then, oh yeah, here, I'll write you a note here out of my book, hands the paper to Joff. And then Joff, and, uh, Joff now has a way to get into the party as well. One thing you mentioned earlier, I just want to mention, just come back to this. You mentioned the bombing of Arkelvy. Yes. Um, and I believe this is something that Sabrina, that uh, Sabrina's character Nari experienced firsthand. It was a few years back. It was when the Arkelvy, the, the kingdom of Everlyn was falling to the empire before it became the province of Arkelvy. Um, and uh, they basically, the empire came in absolutely ruthlessly with their fleet of airships destroyed a major part of the of this capital city and the the country gave up in one day and 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 nari um you had some personal loss in that fight right yeah no it was a little hiroshima-y and kind of terrible yeah the party then starts on uh, fantasy Halloween night. Um, everybody except for Nari goes to the party. Nari is supposed to wait outside um, with that red, uh, that red man with the uh, with the horns, the uh, the knightly Sir Bordemus. Um, while uh, the rest, while the boys went into the party with um, another ally named Thilo, the kind of the, the blue fishy guy that they had met in the catacombs. We earlier. had a plan. We didn't just go to the party. We had yes. a plan. There was a definite plan. Thilo had the power to basically dimension door uh, yes. with somebody else. And so the idea was we get to the party. We somehow get Aliyah Brava isolated. And then either um, Thilo will, will take her out. Or if one of us, if we need to get out in a hurry, he could take whoever's injured out. But the idea was we were in there and Thilo 
this blue guy was our ticket out, hopefully with Aaliyah Brava. So I got spanked um, in this episode and the next episode, <laughs> big time. By because, Jordan. By Jordan. <laughs> so, so the first thing that happens is they manage to get poison in all the drinks and then people start to react to it. They even tried to give a drink with poison in it to Aliyah Brava, but her technical, uh, technically her race was uh, Yuan T pureblood and they are immune to poison so she drank the wine and she was fine but like the governor of the province was there and he got sick this adjudicator that pine's son is working for he's there and he sees people starting to get sick he knows something crazy is going on um and they follow Aaliyah out of the party and into into the kitchens and this is where things went crazy jordan what did you do <laughs> so i used a summon face spell and basically, I called on a conjuration of Lord Radriel, uh, who is the god of love and like passion. And he came in the form of handsome Squidward, basically, and uh, showed up. And one of his abilities is that he can charm people um, basically each turn as like an active activated ability. So he just starts showing up and just trying to charm people. And it works. For some reason, people keep failing wisdom saves and we charmed Aaliyah and got her to be compliant. And then Ebby was able to cast feign death on her, which basically knocked her out for a full what was it, a full hour, I think. Yeah, I think it was a whole hour or maybe two hours. I don't know. It was, it was a while. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was a long time. Um, So we were able to then get her out of there uh, without any problem. And then, you know, Sonara shows up. And is also going to try to car start causing some havoc. Sonara is the witch. Yeah, yes, the witch. And Handsome Squidward also manages to get the charm on her, too. Um, so we have her help run point with getting us out. And I think there was also a guard in the hallway. And <laughs> Handsome Squidward even charmed him, I think. Well, let's be fair. I think Joff charmed him a little bit more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Joff copped a feel. They uh, <laughs> fell on the ground. It was nice. I'm pretty sure Joff got caught trying to take his belt off. Yeah. And I yeah. recall it was a terrible role. And I just remember describing it as you guys just kind of both look at each other as uh, as Joff is just like cupping some balls. Stop. You said he had a handful of hot dog. A handful of hot dog. That's right. A handful of hot dog. That sounds right. Well, well, I tried well, to do a sleight of hand and remove his belt after like while he was standing. And then we fell somehow. Anyway, it was. It was great. Yeah, during all that down below, I know Nari and Bartholocles was <laughs> down <laughs> trying to <laughs> take care of something, I believe. Yeah. When Nari was back up at the carriage, we got she got word on her cell stone from Kira that Fallen Heaven was planning something at that party as well. Um, and that they needed to get out of their ASAP. So Nari went down to see what was going on and she found uh Falline and a couple of other people from Fallen Heaven basically with a bomb. Um and their plan was to pretty much blow up everyone at the party because there were so many influential and important people there. Uh and Nari tried really, really hard to talk her out of it, but she was very insistent. Ortimus and I had to kind of take care of her. But we didn't kill her. We did end up just capturing her. Yeah. 
Yeah, you guys ended up like hiding the bomb in one of the catacombs and you managed to take Feline um, and Aaliyah Brava and take them both to this um, old bombed out um, old customs house that used to be on the uh, on the docks, um, which is, had become kind of a shrine to the fallen um, of the bombing, a kind of a secret shrine because the, the Empire wouldn't allow a shrine to people who had been killed while they were taking over. Um, so it's kind of this kind of a hidden. It was a memorial. A memorial, thank you. It's a memorial. Um, so you take you take Feline and um, Aaliyah Brava to this customs house, and there you find Nilla is waiting inside in the wreckage. There's, it's actually quite um, open once you get through the rubble um, and into this house. And after talking with Aaliyah, and she basically confesses to turning on her group um, because she was tired of lying, she was tired of living in fear, and she just she felt like she deserved it. So um, Nilla kind of um, stabbed her to death. And then, and then I'm repeatedly, pretty sure, brutally, <laughs> repeatedly, brutally. And if that wasn't enough, then Nari and Joff end up stuffing her body with rocks so they can go dump her in the water. Um, <laughs> As you do. It had to be done. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it had to be done. Anyway, oh. after, after that happens, then they wake up Feline, this fallen heaven operative. They, they talk to her. They managed to actually convince her to help them just as they hear a voice outside, a deep booming voice as this uh, this second adjudicator, this adjudicator Ulrich and some of Aaliyah Brava's mercenaries are outside and they want um, the party to come out peacefully um, so that they can receive their judgment. It turns out what happened was that Sonara, that witchy woman, actually, um, she remembered seeing off there at the party and uh she was able to follow them by following the page from her from her spell book she had done a like locate object on this page from her spell book and uh, she managed to follow them right to the customs house and there was a very cool fight there consisting of like a guy with a sword that shot lightning bolts and there was some attempts at some enchanting on people that didn't actually seem to ever work. Um, and also the adjudicator who had this ax that could make people grovel before him so he could take their heads. But there was also, there was also a jester there that had, uh, <laughs> that Pine had accidentally flirted with at the party. who yes. turned out to be one of the mercenaries. Yep. <laughs> yes. Pine's ex-girlfriend who then he ends up killing um, and taking her purpose. sword. Not on. Well, I mean, yeah. Anyway, so the fight was really intense. Oh, and um, Tamara Jr. was there. Oh, Tamara Jr. was there. Yes. Yes, uh, he was there to document and to um, to keep track of what the adjudicator was doing. Um, but after the adjudicator was killed and Sonara was knocked out and the um, the mercenary who shot lightning bolts from his sword managed to get away, um, Temrid and Pine had a nice little conversation. They went on their way. Um, Feline and Nilla... So now the Fallen Heaven operative and the Wilted Rose um, started to talk and try to come to some kind of a new uh, connection between Fallen Heaven and Wilted Rose to try to bring down the Empire again. And our players decided that their characters needed to get out of Dodge before everything went to hell. And that was the end of Chapter 3. Ooh, then we had a Halloween episode. <laughs> <laughs> then we did. Then we did have a Halloween episode, which was quite spooky, and it featured my kids, which was kind of fun. Well, yeah, it was we played, great. We, we played different characters, <laughs> so we played characters that were introduced previously, and the story is canon. It's part of it's part of the the canon of the show. But uh, basically, uh, we Artis, Hop, Bert, and Ember, who we talked about earlier in chapters one and chapters two, 
Um, they had met and joined forces, and they were taking a job in Arkelvy at the same time our heroes were there, but they just never crossed paths. Yep. They managed to defeat some monsters down in the catacombs and um, stop some noises in the basement of this house. And as a reward, they got tickets to board an airship to fly to Almar, the capital of the Almerian Empire. And then we jump back into our regularly scheduled program as our party left the city of Arkelvy and went to the small shanty camp called Last Chance. It's like a base camp before you go into the mountains. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there they ran into Gerard and Porthos again. Um, what are the chances? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this time, our players had a little bit more money and they were able to buy a little bit more gear, but they still did not buy the rope of climbing, uh, nor um, love potion number nine. They left those. <laughs> yeah, very, very problematic uh, love potion. Um, and they bought some mounts, including a very regal caribou named Polkin the king of the caribou, and then also two beekaboos who are basically just giant penguins. <laughs> <laughs> and they say bork, bork. Yep, bork, bork. Bork, bork. Um, yes, and then the party ventured up over the mountains trying to get into the valley of the Stormfist, where Nari is from, because there had been some rumors of some shaking and some earthquakes, as well as some information that the, the Stormfist were acting weird. They were staying up in their summer home all year long they weren't coming back down uh, into more of the valley where it, the weather would be nicer during the winter they were just kind of staying up in the mountains which is very um uh not that's not the normal pattern of things up in these mountains it was odd yes so they decided to go investigate and after eight days of traveling through the mountains um they uh got through the pass and down into the valley um where they ran into a man with a pretty modest rack of antlers <laughs> <laughs> named Yostin. And Yostin was a, a tall heart man who this valley was shared between the Stormfists further north and the and the tall hearts uh, more to the south. And Yostin decides to um, help the party and take them to speak with his elders in the village of Woodbridge, um, kind of the the one settlement that's not kind of nomadic, the actual permanent settlement of the tall heart clan. Yeah, so we we go into um uh where the tall hearts live. I can't remember the name of the city. Is that Woodbridge? Yeah, Woodbridge. That... Yeah, because okay. there's a there's a wooden bridge that goes across the river. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um nailed it. Yes. Anyway, uh I remember that there's like a statue of Lord Moshe there. Um mm-hmm. and the elders are like creepy. They're creepy. Yeah, they're they're like not normal creatures they're they're something fey like you could say but they give like i think some more counsel for us and i think reveal some more of the kind of the prophecy stuff yeah they they give you another prophecy talking about like um what's going on up here in the mountains and pointing you more in the direction that you guys are on the right track that something bigger is going on um something world altering and i believe that the word inevitable or the angel is mentioned. Um, yeah, I think so. In this I think prophecy. you're right. But yeah. also it mentions each of you in turn. It talks about, um, it talks about each of you um, a little bit more, uh, more clearly than the previous prophecy did. Yeah. I think this is when it kind of comes out that Ebby is the avatar for Lord Moshe, right? Yeah. I think you were called the unknown avatar. Yeah, the unknown avatar. Yeah, I remember I remember Ebby doing his ritual plant growth and spending like the whole day casting that and that results in a 
like two years of extreme plant growth in the area. And you gave me some inspiration and I have not forgotten about that, Paul. And, <laughs> and you it will come it. back. <laughs> uh, one oh, thing gosh. too, in the, in the prophecies, we haven't mentioned this yet, but in the prophecies, it specifically mentions, um, like uh, refers to Nari as having a broken band. And she had had a tattoo on one of her arms that was a solid band that had, uh, at some point, uh, it had spiderweb shattered. So it looked like it was broken uh, up into like uh, shards on her arm. I'm pretty sure it actually broke way back in episode six, but she didn't recognize it until later. Just for reference, like those tattoos are pretty sacred. Um, like the Glass Mountain tribes have a soothsayer, like fortune teller who tattoos kind of like prophecies and then also like all of your coming of age tattoos. So when Nari noticed, it was a really big deal. And it was actually on that episode, I think, where we were on the raft um, right after the the manor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right before we were betrayed by Zach Braff. Yes, on the episode called Twilight River Cruise, in case you're wondering. Um, yeah, awesome. So uh, Pine got a, his sword reforged with uh, combined with the Jester's uh, sword, making it more powerful. And then you guys decided to travel further north into Stormfist land. And you traveled to what's called Winterhome, which is traditionally where the Stormfist clan would meet up for the winter and kind of right out the winter down here, lower in the valley where the weather's a little bit nicer. Um, it's less extreme, but it had been abandoned for numerous years. And it was very obvious. Um, but before you guys got there, actually, I forgot I jumped ahead. Um, when you guys reached the point between the tall heartland and the Stormfist land, you guys could almost sense a difference. Uh, like the Stormfist land was more wild. It was less cared for. And you instantly got attacked by this ice spider tick thing that jumped out of the trees and killed our lovely caribou king Polkin with one blast of ice breath. Um, and uh, that was a fun fight uh, because the ice breath was very, very um, hard hitting. But you managed to pull through, kill the ice stick, and continue on to winter home. Yeah, and, and uh, we should mention that Yastin, the the tall heart, was an accomp was accompanying us as a, as a guide. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he became a true homie. He did. Yeah, yeah. I, I like one Yastin. of the boys. You could yes. say. <laughs> well, as you guys continued to travel, you you managed to make it to winter home, and when you got there, you see you had seen that it was uh, decrepit, that people hadn't been there for a long time. As you're investigating. You see signs that maybe there were some people here recently um, and you actually uncover in the snow a dead body. And as you're looking at this dead body, you hear this roar and turn around to see these two giant bears um, called Ursine that are like 19 feet tall. Um, and they have uh, these kind of mini mammoths called tuskers. Um, these are like, uh, I guess, kind of cow sized elephants that can um, breathe uh, like blasts of cold through their trunks. And that was a very, uh, a very gnarly fight. That's when we first saw Ebby use a wall of fire um, to great effect. Uh, and you managed to bring down the earth sign and the Tuskers. After they hit very, very hard. <laughs> I was going to say that was, a, it was a rough fight, but we made it. Yes, that one was uh, that was that was one of those fights where I'm like, OK, I may have just ended this game again. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a wall of fire involved. And there um, was a wall of fire. Yeah. Yeah. 
So um, after we after we beat these uh, giant ursine and their tusker pets, we found a dead body in the snow. It looked to be um, a, a, a human sized person in uh, armor. And we followed some tracks that left out out of winter home and actually ended up going kind of the direction we were heading, which was up to the Stormfist's summer home. Um, so we continued our path up that way. And um, when we arrived at summer home, there was a bit of tension, although some of our characters who didn't speak the language had a hard time really understanding that there was tension. Um, but Nari presented herself at the gate and um, Nari's father uh, came and uh, recognizing her, uh, had the gate opened for her and her companions, including Yostin, the, the, the tall heart, who was seen with some um, suspicion. Yes. There's um, animosity we were all there. kind of seen with some sus- suspicion, though. Pine had no idea. But you're right, yeah. Nari <laughs> this had... is going really good. <laughs> Nari, Nari, we were suspicious of Nari, right? They kept asking if she was still a Stormfist. Right. Yeah, Yeah, her family was even kind of questioning, like, if she was necessarily loyal to them or if she had been kind of corrupted by the the soft lowlands. Um, And in fact, her mom wouldn't even talk to her, um, which is something she kind of regrets here at the end of this chapter. Yeah. They see some signs of some recent celebration there in summer or in, yeah, up in summer home and uh they kind of ask what's going on but nobody will really answer um, eventually they go to the leader's tower and there are people in there who are kind of just drinking and eating and uh the the chief of the clan comes over um and uh kind of looks at nari and then they call over the soothsayer the uh the um the tattooist who does those kind of ritualistic tattoos for everybody named mave who looks in nari's eyes and decides yes yes Nari is still a storm fist. And then the celebration can start. Um, during the celebration, they kind of realize that Nari's younger brother, Tazar, has actually been chosen as a hero. And he has been sent into this cave that opened up at the north end of town, going into the mountains. Um, and the reason why he is this hero is because they did some kind of a competition where they all w- wore leather bands around their arms. And whoever whoever's leather band broke... Um, was the hero. And that all comes from a prophetic tattoo that this woman Maeve had, had uh, tattooed onto her, um, onto her living canvas. Um, this man that she tattoos all of her, her divinations on. Um, so Pine was looking that. for whiskey. <laughs> and what did he find? <laughs> While he was looking for whiskey, he found a broken down deacon. And so he brought Ebby over and he's like, Hey, Ebby, um, do you remember when you were reading a book early, the, when you, you figured out you could read that book, you'd learned a bunch of stuff and you figured out that you could probably even potentially awaken other deacons and give them their consciousness back. Why don't you try it with this one? Mm. Oh, also, at uh, first we almost turned it into a bomb. We weren't quite sure. <laughs> I was, we, <laughs> well, I think I was going to say there was the distinct possibility that I failed and it detonated in the middle of all of this. Well, we also used the, the the detonator from the bomb that Fallen Heaven was going to use to destroy the, the Halloween party um, to actually give this deacon power. Um, but it, it the, the deacon woke up and and then, Ebby, you used your your abilities to uh, to try to awaken it. And she awoke and told us that her name was Hermine. And uh, she she had a bit more memory of her past than Ebby does. Um, but now we had this this somewhat broken down deacon who was slowly recovering uh, with us named Hermine. 
Yes. And a clue for those listening. Uh, Hermine will be playing a, a role still in disc number two of the Crystal Codex. Ooh. While they're in the tower eating some food and kind of celebrating Nari still being called a Stormfist. I somebody... never found any whiskey. <laughs> there was no whiskey. <laughs> there was no whiskey. But um, somebody tapped on uh, Joff's shoulder. Scott, do you remember what happened there? Yeah. So way back, geez, like 20 episodes prior, maybe even more, a character from very early on in the campaign shows up. It was none other than Magister Colbury. He had made his way up the mountains searching for something in this cave that the Stormfists were guarding. And he asked Joff, Roos still going by Joff at the time, uh, for help getting into the cave. And Joff told him that if he could walk in invisible, he could follow him along and they could travel together in the cave. And I think that decision made a big difference uh, for what is to come. And while that was going on, um, Nari was kind of talking to the soothsayer and her family and trying to figure out what everybody was celebrating. And it, it turns out that the soothsayer had kind of misread a prophecy. Um, she, she reads her prophecies through tattoos and she has like this living canvas uh, and when we examining that, it turned out that the prophecy was actually talking about Nari, but they had thought that it was talking about her younger brother and had sent him into the mountain, possibly to his doom. So they decided to uh, make it right and instead send Nari, as well as the boys, minus Yastin, who stayed out with Hermine, uh, into the cave to one, rescue Tazar, Nari's little brother, as well as find out what's down there in this cave that was supposed to bring power and glory to the Stormfist clan. Yep. We descended forever into this chasm. Um, and uh, it, we just kept going down, down, down until we finally arrived at what looks to be something similar to the ancient facility we'd found a long time ago under the Shrine of Lord Moshe. Um, and when we arrived there, we took a break to do another JV team episode for Christmas. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Bert and uh, Bert, Ember, Hop and Artis uh, took on the Grinch who stole Christmas. Um, but one no, important it's thing. Dag Rinich who Sorry. stole Showcase Day. That's right. <laughs> Dag Rinich who stole uh, Showcase Day. And uh, while we were there, something important that we'd noticed as well is that um, they they were in the Almar province, which is the the heart of the Almerian Empire. And they noticed that there weren't as many soldiers manning way stations and patrolling roads as there should have been. So the empire was gearing up for something. Oh, and also they saved showcase day. They did say they did save <laughs> showcase day. All right. Well, once you guys got into that fortress, you, you kind of found these uh, study rooms and you found two different books that you managed to salvage that almost got destroyed. One of them dealt with the anatomy of the ancient race that, Ebi is from before he became a metallic deacon or Oromek as they were actually called. And then the other one actually was more along the lines of the deacon, these, this Oromek, this robotic kind of physiology. But while all that's going on, they got attacked by these automatons 
two of them with hammer hands and two of them that were just basically walking anvils. And that fight was kind of brutal. And if that, that fight was brutal, then they go down to the next level and they get attacked by two more anvil automatons and two more hammer automatons. And that fight was even more brutal. It should be said too, just about um, Ebby and uh, Deacons, um, that we found out that Ebby is actually much older. He's, he's, he isn't a robot consciousness. He was somebody else before, and his people put their consciousness into robot bodies to survive some cataclysm. Mm-hmm. And to kind of oversee the function of whatever a crystal engine would be, which is something that we had been steadily kind of trickling information and learning a little bit about as we had read books back in like chapter three. Yes. And the beginning, I think, of chapter four a little bit. Yeah. Well, down to the next level, you you as you're fighting some more of these automatons, this woman of the Stormfist clan comes out and helps you fight them off. And you find out her name is Adressa. And she actually came down here with Nari's younger brother, but they got separated. And um, she kind of tells you that it's time that you have to go rescue him soon because Nari's little brother, Tazar, is not hero material um, he probably should not be down here at all uh, so our players search this floor a little bit they find some pretty cool uh, magical items and some ancient tech and then they descend one more floor where they enter this room that has a statue on the east wall and a statue on the west wall but the statue on the east wall is covered in crystals and just glowing and as they sneak across the room they find a couple of dead bodies and then the statue comes to life and starts clobbering people um starts uh making people they can't look at it because these crystals are so bright it's a pretty intense fight uh nari finds her brother cowering in this room uh, to the north and uh, he won't come and help fight. He just kind of is too afraid. And uh, they managed to destroy this statue and free her brother. But then af- as this statue breaks, crystals start to pop up out of the floor and the players have to um, decide whether they're going to stay here or move into the next room uh, where there's a staircase going further into the facility um, and possibly be cut off by the crystals. And they decide to move further into the facility. They are cut off from her younger brother as well as Adressa. And they decide to continue further into the facility with uh, Colbury, the former magister of Tabury, um, who they... Um, have been traveling with now at this time. Hey, Scott. Yeah. There was an episode called the Joff and Gigi show that came up next. What? Why would, why would we call that the Joff and Gigi show? What happened in that episode? <laughs> you know, this one, this one was, uh, was fun. I don't know that I've ever rolled quite so high ever consistently. Um, the Joff and Gigi show was this floor that we came up to was full of electricity. And there were crystals in, in a bunch of contraptions, you know, arcing electricity all over the place. And um, I had just gotten evasion. And then I also just had a ring of evasion um, given to me by Evie. And so I just figured, you know, why not? I'll just walk through all the electricity and try and figure out how to turn the puzzle off. And uh... <laughs> And you did. I did. That's exactly <laughs> did. what you did. That's exactly what happened. I walked around in the electricity, jumping around, dodging, and my uh, spiritual guardian, uh, known as Squire, he was kind of helping out, making the electricity kind of zip around me. And uh, 
I found a, a keyboard written in a language I couldn't understand, found the right button. It was unreal. You know, <laughs> I, the amount of high rolls that I did in that yeah. session was just wild. And who's Gigi? Oh, Gigi. I didn't introduce him uh, when I described myself earlier. Gigi is uh, Roos's pet lizard. Uh, she's uh, a skink, very bright blue, like iridescent colored tongue. And so when she opens her mouth, it's just this like this flash of really bright color. But the rest of her is colored um, just like green and like lizard like. And she is just an animal companion. Um, but Joff or Roos can't pick locks himself. It's Gigi that does that for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as you were dodging around all that lightning, you also managed to um, solve a puzzle, which uh, dealt with putting crystals in the correct order. And then you managed to find some new feet for Ebby. Um, basically, in their research, they had uh, realized that um, the race that Ebby was before um, had wings and they could fly. And when they built these new robotic bodies for them, they did not have time or the tech to um, to put wings on these bodies. And so these feet were called the compromise, which it turns out are um, basically boots of levitation. And so um, there was that compromise for Ebby. But moving further into this facility, they came to this massive forge uh, level with fire uh, forges. Uh, there were uh, furnaces on the walls and there was some levers and there were some grills, you know, some grates that fire would come up through. And there was this massive 20 foot robot that they ended up fighting and they managed to destroy this massive forge master Ormek and then uh, continue further into the facility through this elevator that descended for quite some time. So when we arrived on this next floor, we saw that there was a crystal wall and there was a head and arm and a sword poking out of it. We realized as we started to talk with him that this was Laramie, the Lord of Swords, one of the deities of our world trapped in a wall of crystal. And we talked about we talked with him um, to try to figure out what was going on as far as why the earthquakes were happening. Um, we knew that this that this was supposed to trap um, Iramil, the angel of inevitability. Um, and Laramie told us that Iramil was actually trapped behind him, but he was, he was powerful and there were, he was, um, his influence was kind of leaving him and coming back. Um, there was another, uh, the, the lady of shields, uh, lady Balbarel. She had died in this fight that they'd had millennia ago before they got trapped in the crystal wall. Um, so he was basically saying, Hey, get me out of this wall. I will kill uh, the angel of, uh, of inevitability who's trapped behind me. But we decided to do a little bit more exploring because we also found out that Laramie was fiendish in nature. He wasn't a celestial God. He was actually a fiend worshiped as a God. Yes. And one other thing that you guys in talking with Laramie, you realized these crystals that had been um, created by Ebby's people, you know, thousands of years ago, um, these crystals had proliferated and grown and actually had evolved. And this wall that uh, Laramie and Aramil were trapped in was neglected is what the word he kept using. So as the players went down to the next level into the actual level where the crystal engine is, this room with all these crystals on the walls and ceilings and the floor tiles have this kind of like repeating pattern and lights shooting around the room. This crystalline head pops up out of the ground and starts talking to the players, revealing itself to be the actual crystals of 
Pavantes of this world. They had evolved to the point where they became this sort of organism, kind of like um, those that massive fungus that's all intertwined. Uh, basically, the crystals had uh, everywhere that they were connected uh, in the core of the planet uh, was this one continuous organism that had gained sentience and awareness. So this crystal was seeking to complete its purpose, which was to proliferate and protect Pavantis from uh, this inevitable disaster. Uh, and you also found out that the inevitability, this disaster was down below, something deep in the depths of the planet that would eventually destroy all of Pavantis. And the players realized that this crystal was going to continue on and basically destroy all life in its effort to preserve Pavantis by crystallizing everything. So you decided that maybe the crystals need to be stopped. A very intense fight uh, commenced, including some uh, crazy breath weapons from this crystalline head um, and uh, some big hits, but you managed to defeat this crystalline head and were able to actually approach the crystal engine itself. We fought a, we fought a face on the floor. <laughs> a face on the floor. Arms were coming out from the sides too. I don't <laughs> think I described true. that as well, but there were arms that were slamming into you as well. It was wild. Yes. And um, as the crystalline head breaks, uh, you actually can hear the crystal up above, the floor above, it starts to come crashing down. Joff goes upstairs to investigate, to see what's happening while the other three and Colbury approach the crystal engine, trying to decide what to do as they approach the crystal engine, trying to figure out, should they turn it off? Should they let it go? What needs to be done? They decide it's time to use that crystal disc, which is actually a fail safe that will turn off the crystal engine and stop crystals from proliferating. Uh, and so they, they do. They open the door, they slide this crystal pizza shield in, set the temperature to 425 and close the <laughs> door. <laughs> and the crystal engine turns off. Heading back upstairs, what Joff sees is he sees, as he gets up to the top of the stairs, he sees Laramie laying dead on the ground and he sees Iramil missing an arm, his left arm, the same arm as Chancellor Ramsey. Um, he sees this angel turn and look at him with two swords sticking out of his gut, um, the swords that Laramie was using. And um, he points a finger at Joff and is something that something's about to happen when he looks up and sees that everything is starting to collapse as the crystal engine turns off and all of this bandage that the crystal engine had been producing for thousands of years turns to mundane, normal crystal and starts to crack and pulverize and turn to dust. Iramil teleports out. The players rush through the final door in this facility and they find an airship. The last thing that we see is a hole kind of opening up in the glass mountains as everything is shaking and exploding and earthquakes and volcanoes, that kind of thing. And this airship comes flying out and our heroes have made it but Pavantis has been altered forever. And that's where we're going to end our session today. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that is the end of disc one. So now you have 
had your memories refreshed about all of the things that happened in disc one, and you are ready to continue on with us and our adventure into disc two, into this new changed Pavantis. And if that story sounded exciting to you, and this was the first episode you've ever listened to, I recommend going back and listening to everything because there were so many amazing moments, awesome interactions, cool fights that we had kind of glossed over. And a lot of very funny moments, too. This is true. Not to mention all of the sexual tension between <laughs> oh, Bruce <gosh>. and <laughs> Abby. Yeah, there's, there was a lot. There was a lot. And uh, oh, so there's much probably sexual more attention. to come down the road, you know. Uh-huh. And I didn't even mention finding <laughs> skipping rocks. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for listening. We're glad you guys are along on this ride with us. And, and now as we've been doing this for over a year, uh, we love it. We're glad that you guys love it as well. So keep listening because there's a lot more adventure to come. And until we see you next time, have a great time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>